1: Well, welcome back as we head into hour two. It's a delight to welcome back to the show someone who is truly a legend uh, in broadcasting and uh, one of the first people I met when I got in the radio business about 20 or so years ago. He's always moving the envelope forward, always pushing it, always seeing around the corner and always doing something a little more interesting than you thought of yourself. He is Lee Habib good friend of mine. He is the founder and host of Our American Stories and I got I received uh, his most recent one, uh, Our American Stories most recent one on William Graham Sumner and I loved it so much and we occasionally get a chance to catch up with Lee. I wanted to make this one of those occasions. Lee, welcome back to the show, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix.
2: Well, thanks for having me, Seth. You
1: betcha. Uh, Again, for the audience that may not know, tell them a little bit about the origin story of Our American Stories. And let me tell the audience before you do that that they can access them at OurAmericanStories.com.
2: You bet. And by the way, they can get it anywhere they get their podcasts. That's right. On every podcasting
1: platform. That's right.
2: You bet. And uh, look, the the show really, we decided to do a storytelling show only. Mm -hmm. No politics. No news. Just digging back into the things that Americans, we thought, would care about. History, sports history, business history, stories of songs, stories of faith, stories of the country. And, and we, we, it's everything from a story of Henry Ford last week. We're doing Dale Earnhardt's death, how he died and how he lived and who his father was. Because his father died racing, too. Yep. We also have a very special uh, Daytona 500 special the other hour, one hour is on Dale Earnhardt, and the other hour is on the birth of NASCAR. Yep. And it started in the moonshine business. Yep. And, and, and so what we try to do is let people fall in love with their country, warts and all, because there are warts. Just like any good marriage celebrates its 25th anniversary, there's always going to be a toast to getting through hard times, right? We Mm -hmm. got through some hard times. Any marriage that says it didn't get through hard times, Mm -hmm. it's just not telling the truth Mm -hmm. about their marriage. Mm -hmm. And America got through hard times, and we covered the the Civil War. By the way, the Revolutionary War were really hard times. No one knew what was going to happen. And and what we try to do is as people listen, and we do speeches regularly and big speeches that no one knows, big speeches everyone knows, like the Gettysburg Trust, but they didn't know the story behind the speech and why Lincoln made it when he made it. Mm -hmm. And so we try to make stuff not directly tied to the news, but while reading it, you can recognize patterns and things that have happened in history that continue to try to resolve themselves today. We've been fighting over some of the same issues centuries, it turns out.
1: And, you know, one of the beautiful things about what you're doing with our American stories is every once in a while when this country tends to get or parts of this country tend to get in a little bit of a funk, you get to read these great American uh, stories of so many legends that, you know, we'd either forgotten about or we heard about once. Uh, maybe Paul Harvey did something on them. Maybe it's a story our parents told us. And you go into such such depth I'll tell you, someone, I don't know if you've actually done it on him or not, but you mentioned NASCAR. Um, I I don't know if you've done a story on Tom Wolfe, the novelist who passed away a few years back. When you think about all the phrases he created and added to our lingua franca, to our our regular conversation— One of the phrases most people don't know, you know, because he did uh, things like radical chic or, uh, you know, um, bonfire of the van. Yeah, man, and faux bonfire of the vanities, the right stuff. You know, one of them, good old boys, about Junior Johnson. A nineteen sixty something profile would have been probably sixty five, maybe sixty six. Yep. Yeah, good old boys is another one. But I often wonder, do you ever do people who are still alive? Generally.
2: Um, generally we, we, we do not. Yeah. Um, and we don't, we, we don't because we, we want to have a context. We want to go a little bit further out and not look like we're trying to do the present. Right. Um, the only difference, the only time we will is like when Mario Andretti told us the story of his father. Okay. Right. Yeah. And what happened to his father when Yugoslavia took over the part of Italy that his family was from. Yeah and they took the farm the vineyard the farm the family farm and they made his father take down the cross yeah and so he wouldn't do that for Tito so, his family were refugees. How could you so not do Mario that story Andrei's right? Wife, yeah, yeah, the story, yeah, of where are you from? yeah, and so we 'll do those stories yeah but that's that 's interesting well,
1: so. when they pass i 'm going to send you a bunch of musical folks. I was just looking up Ronnie Millsap still alive, so you won 't want to do him because I was playing some of his music earlier you 're from Tennessee, you know you know you know of Ronnie Millsap. just some of these stories are amazing, how they succeed over all the encumbrances that are put upon them. But um, we can return to that. we did a
2: Duke Ellington hour with Terry Keechow. Yeah. Oh, did you? Just before he died, actually. Before Terry died, not before Duke. Right, right. And it it was extraordinary, Duke Ellington's life, the overcoming he had to do, you know, having to be forced to come through the back door of the Cotton Club, which was in Harlem, and he's black. Yeah. And it's in Harlem, and the place, the theme of the Cotton Club is a plantation. Yeah. But yet here comes Duke Ellington overcoming this racial uh, discrimination and the bitterness it caused in him. But yet at the same time, he rose above it and he managed to create this remarkable musical catalog. And it's it's a story of triumph over adversity, but we don't downplay the adversity. No. You had to live through some awful things. It makes the triumph
1: a... sometimes. I mean, it's the story of Exodus in a way, isn't it? That the the adversity sometimes is what is responsible for the for the great overcoming and the great triumph. Is that too is is that too much of a stretch? I think it's true.
2: No, no it's not. And in that sense, our, our our show has that those kind of existential yeah. and I would call spiritual yeah. and biblical struggles yeah. that we all have. Yeah. That we all have.
1: The Duke Ellington thing is fascinating, you know, Lee, because when would he have died? Mid-70s, probably 75, 76 somewhere around there. Yeah, something it, like that. Every yeah. jazz student or every musical student still learns his music, you know. And for yep. we trumpet players, he had the best in the business, a guy named Cat Anderson who could wail like no one else. Man, the guy knew how The guy knew what he was doing. Let's just say that he earned oh, yeah. He earned his reputation. Well, when no you doubt. D- Yeah, go ahead.
2: No, and what he did is he hired the best players. Yeah, yeah, he gave them yeah, a lot of runway. He yeah. even let them write samples, and he would pay them. Yeah, And then he would create music from their music. Yeah. And a lot of them thought, wow, Duke's stealing my stuff. Well, yeah. <laughs> first of all, he paid <laughs> you. Yeah, but right. none of them ever right. wrote hits like That's Duke right. did. So That's Duke's right. special talent was curation. It was putting this stuff together, and it was letting these great musicians have a stage and showcasing. Yeah. talent. Yeah, right. and, and talent. the comfort
1: of knowing no one can do what I can do, so I can be comfortable to let them have a little bit of a run on it. Uh, That's exactly right. Yeah. Young David, if you find a solo by Kat Anderson, maybe you can go out with it or something, uh, just to illustrate the the level of, of uh, vir- uh, virtuosity I'm talking about. William Grant Sumner. Um, Lee, this is an interesting one, because he created a very famous phrase that a very famous Ms. President misused.
2: Well, he gave a speech in 1883, and for some context, he was a sort of little-known social science yep. professor at right. Yale at the time. Right, and he was a, a specialist in free markets and let's say fair economics. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this essay in Harper's Weekly about a person he called the forgotten man, a, right. c- a cast of characters in right. American life right. that he thought were not being paid attention to. Right, and this became sort of a runaway best-selling essay that ultimately became a best-selling book. And, you know, at Our American Stories, we go back and we do speeches from time to time and perform them. And here it was, this remarkable speech, because he turned the essay into a speech, Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. And boy, when we read it on our team, we were like, Boy, does this have relevance today?
1: Yeah, it resonates today. I think you said this could have been a page for Donald Trump's, or a page to explain Donald Trump's uh, support within certain communities in America, yeah?
2: I think that's right, because there are a lot of people in America whose voice was not being heard yep. um, in the mainstream media, in the academic world, um, in the NGOs, and the worldwide Davos divas, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the rank-and-file workers who make the country hum. Mm-hmm. were not being considered in the grand schemes right. of the elites. That's right. Um, and yet the ones who were paying for these grand schemes were these very workers in, for, in terms of taxes or subsidies. And so this is what Sumner was experiencing even back then, that the working man was being overlooked by the elites of his time.
1: Let me um, go. Can you stay another segment, Lee?
2: Oh, absolutely. Let
1: me let me give a a brief pressy of the of the of the Graham thesis as I go to break and we'll come back and pick up on it. And also how FDR kind of misused it too, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember my history right, and if I remember my who who wrote the great book, Amity Schlays with the same title. But effectively the Graham thesis was that A wants to help X, X being a man in poverty or at the bottom. And B wants to help X too. That's philanth philanthropy. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. And we have the impulse to do it. But it becomes a problem when A and B get together and pass a law that coerces C <laughs> into funding their maybe good project for X. And C is the forgotten man. We'll be right back. Is this Cat Anderson? Great.
0: <laughs>
1: courtesy of tom Wolfe, who knew that uh he would make a hit for waylon jennings one day welcome back to the Seth Leibson <laughs> show that's that's but lee habib is my guest of our american stories but that really is the trajectory of america you know you do something amazing you don't know where it'll end up
2: huh <laughs> you can never predict it yeah, i never predict where it's gonna go
1: um Lee Habib, yes. He is the founder and host at OurAmericanStories.com, Our American Stories, which you can get at any any podcast platform or com. And we'll get back more into the philosophy of it and behind it in a moment. I just want to stay with William Graham Sumner, one of their latest releases, for a few more moments, because I guess I would say, Lee, as much as you don't know what great line or idea might propel itself and where it can end up, it can also be distorted and used for distortive purposes. So when William Graham Sumner was writing about the, um, was writing about the forgotten man in, what, 1883, I think, um, some years later, 1932, in a famous radio address campaigning for the presidency, Franklin Roosevelt used that phrase, but distorted it. He made it about another person. He talked about it being the man at the very bottom, the man they were all trying to help not the man caught in the middle trying to do his best, which is what William Graham Sumner was pointing out. It's just kind of interesting, that history. And I think a lot of people learned the phrase probably wrongly through Franklin Roosevelt, uh, distortively. No doubt. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but, but if you want to understand, I think you're right about this, Lee, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct me where I'm wrong, but I think you're right about this. I think a huge segment of the support that Donald Trump received is much like or could be grafted on a tremendous amount of the same support Richard Nixon got in 1968 when he was talking about the quiet American or the forgotten American, the guy no one ever really thinks about in all these economic and political machinations.
2: Yeah? Well, it's true. You know, Look, these words that he says, Sumner writes these words. Mm-hmm. He is the simple, honest laborer, ready to earn his living by productive work. Right. We pass him by because he is independent, self-supporting, He asks no favors. Mm -hmm. He goes, such is the forgotten man. Mm -hmm. He works, he votes. Generally, he prays, but always he pays. Mm -hmm. Yes, above all, he pays. (laughs) And this is powerful, right? Because did we ask for EVs? You know, when the head (laughs) of the EPA comes out and says there will be X amount of electric vehicles by such and such date, we're sitting around saying to ourselves, driving our 14-year-old used cars, who made this man the king of cars? Mm-hmm. Don't we get to decide what cars we drive mm-hmm. when curriculums change and we go to the school board meetings and we don't like it? Who decided how the curriculum changed? Did we get to vote on that? So many things are happening in America. The bureaucrats are deciding. And I think around the world, frankly. I mean, this is why a guy like Javier Malay wins. This is why Brexit happens. And I'm not t- picking sides here. Republican or Democrat, because there's a lot of late, former union guys who are now here, right? So former traditional Democrat voters have joined this mass, or this what I call this middle-class mass, that doesn't feel like they're being represented by their elected officials. And, that's, and, and yeah. that, that's Trump. That, that explains the that rise explains of
1: Trump. That explains Trump. And it explains remember Nixon's line in 1968. I pulled up the speech real briefly. The other American. So something like that. There's another American. They work in America's factories. They run America's businesses. They serve in government. They provide provide most of the soldiers who die to keep us free. They give drive to the spirit of America. They give steel to the backbone. They are the good people, the decent people. They work, they save, they pay their taxes, and they care. And um, it was the other voice he was talking about that Trump speaks to that William Graham Sumner was describing him. When you see someone like Javier Millet, right, and people give him such international attention like no other president from that country and God knows how long our memories run, Lee, it's because he's doing what Trump did, I think. He's saying things people have thought about but no one else is saying,
2: right? That's what well, that, it's about. that's true. And, and in the end— um, there are more voters than there are interest groups. Right. And right. as much as we report or decry the Davos crowd, yep. what's really unnerving to the common man is, well, good, go to Davos, but what about me? Yeah. And what about my life? Right. And are you guys fighting for me? I'm the one who puts you in office. That's right. Um, and so I think that's the big one. And then all these unelected bureaucrats, like the head of the EPA, right. saying this is how many electric cars you'll have. Or, the, or our academic world where right. suddenly you're seeing kids from the river to the sea and they don't know the river or the sea, <laughs> yeah. how did that happen? Right. How did my tax dollars at my state university turn a what should have been a purple city like Ann Arbor or Oxford, Mississippi, where I live? All of these places now are blue. Washington, D.C. is completely blue. That should be the people's city. It should be half blue and half red, yeah. but it's 92% blue. How did that happen?
1: Forgive my slander when I said you were of Tennessee. I'm sorry. I don't know why I thought that. I know that there is a, a big <laughs> a big Tennessee expat <laughs> community. So <laughs> i <I'm> do sorry. <laughs> yes, of course you're in Mississippi. <laughs> Forgive me for that, uh, Lace oh, Majesty Lee. Um, I gotta ask you. I've um, I, I'm, I'm sure it's the it's a question on the audience's mind. In doing all of these things for our American stories. Is there one that stands out that made your eyebrows rise the most when you were digging in and doing research? One that just you'll never forget, man, you knew you were onto the right thing when you learned that story.
2: It was Lincoln's last day. Okay. We spent a whole hour on his last day Yeah, because what a day. The night before the biggest celebration in the history of Washington, D.C., Lee has surrendered. Finally, Lincoln's Lincoln's free. The wait of the prosecuting the Civil War is off his backs. He meets with his cabinet, with his son, with, with Ulysses S. Grant for the first time in the longest time. He goes out to the streets that day to celebrate with a carriage ride with his wife. His wife notes in her diary, this is the first time my husband's been happy in years. He says he wants to go back to Springfield practice law. He wants to go see the Pacific Ocean. That night he goes to the Ford Theater. The war is over in many people's minds but not in John Wilkes Boots. Yeah. And by the way, he's a well-known actor. He yep. doesn't wear a mask. That's right. He gains entry, blows off Lincoln's head yep. that night, yep. and they carry his body down the steps, yep. looking out into a misty that night and a misty evening with a light rain falling, and there's only one place to put this oversized president, yep. and that's in a little boarding house across the street where he dies in the middle of the night. What a last—we called it the short, happy life oh, wow. of Abraham Lincoln.
1: There was a professor who was a scholar in the Federalist Papers, you probably read his version of him when you were in college, Clinton Rossiter, he, um, he said of Lincoln, he was the Christ martyr of America's democratic passion play, shot on Good Friday, dying on Easter
2: weekend. Yep. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that is a, and that, and that the man who shot him was proud to have shot him, That's right. said six Semper Tyrannus yep. on that stage yep. for everyone to see, yep. and thought he was going to go back to the South, a conquering hero. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, Seth, when people say America's never been more divided, right. I go, what rubbish. Right. Rubbish.
1: Right. Our American story is Lee Habib, H-A-B-E-E-B. Um, when your name is Liebson Lee, I find that it's not self-evident, speaking of Lincoln. It's not a self-evident truth as to how to spell it, so I spell my <laughs> guests' names H-A-B-E-E-B. Lee Habib, thanks for being with us, brother.
2: Thanks as always,
1: Seth. All right. God bless and Godspeed and God continued bless. success. I'm Seth in six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Seth Leapson here from my friends from the Midas Gold Group War Room, the MAGA veterans at Midas point out that the Federal Reserve does not that the um that the, the sorry I got that wrong point out that the Federal Reserve note does not belong to you. It belongs to the Federal Reserve Bank. But the federal debt doesn't belong to the Federal Reserve Bank. That belongs to you. This is your wake up call to what the Midas Gold Group veterans believe the central bank and government are trying to do a controlled demolition of our current system with a central bank digital currency to take complete and utter control of our transactional freedoms. Protect yourself. Turn this wake up call into a phone call to veteran owned Midas Gold Group. That's four eight zero three six zero three thousand or go to Midas Goldgroup dot com four eight zero three six zero three thousand or Midas dot com always faithful Midas Gold Group MAGA and proud of it. Midas dot com. All right, what did you find from the archives?
3: From the archives? Yeah. I was excited to share with you something that I discovered. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you or how many people in general even know this exists, but the other day I was watching this compilation of weird moments in American politics, and I saw a clip in this compilation of Tip O'Neill and Bill Buckley together oh in a God. political ad. and I thought, wait a minute, red flags were waving in my mind. I said, that's two opposite ends of the political spectrum. What is going on? And so I went and searched up the source material, and I'm very excited to show you and the rest of our listening audience. (laughs) Tip O'Neill and William F. Buckley discussing the benefits of space technology.
2: All right. Buckley and O'Neill together, how come? I'm here to elucidate the prodigious benefits of space technology, you To bring what you say down to Earth. Take this laser developed for space research. It may one day supplant the need for coronary bypass surgery. It could obliterate an artery obstruction in minutes. The patients up and around the same day. I'm speechless. See, the benefits from space are endless. Space technology. This is what's in it for you.
1: What year would that have been? Does it tell you?
3: Um, no, but I would guess late 80s. Yeah,
1: well, year, maybe not instance. too late. Maybe not too late. Maybe like 85 or 86. He left in 86, right? Uh, well, that's one part of it, uh, Speaker Tip O'Neill. Um, that's, that's an a part of it. The other part of it is they were talking about using lasers for heart surgery, yeah? And this is kind of interesting uh, for people who may not know. Um, People of my age or older will remember, you know, hearing friends of their parents, perhaps, God forbid, one of their own parents dying from a heart attack. Um, That would have happened in their 40s or 50s, really 50s or 60s more commonly in... um, and we didn't really think twice about it. Someone died early from a heart attack. How old were they? Oh, I don't know, 55. Yeah, it happened. It almost never does now, I think I'm right in saying. Um, most heart attacks, the vast majority of heart attacks in through the 80s um, were fatal. Um, today, most are survivable. Hmm. And it's- Because a, of lasers? In large part, yeah. A lot of laser therapy, a lot of laser angioplasty, a lot of that whole stent procedure, which- yeah, it can be directed through those kinds of uh uh myocardial laser I don't know, vascular or revascularization, whatever it's called. But yeah, yeah. You don't really hear of people dying in their fifties from heart attacks anymore. I don't know if you were you were probably too old born too late by then to know of that. But growing up it was quite common. You'd hear of a friend of your parent who died. From a heart attack in their fifties huh. or sixties, wow. and it just doesn't really. I mean, them.
3: I am aware though that heart disease is the leading cause of death among male Americans, but uh, <laughs> I guess heart attacks have somewhat. Well, it would uh, happen later. Their survivability it, well, in it my generation.
1: Ha- it would happen a lot later in life, and it would happen. I mean, gosh, why was I thinking about it? Oh, I know why. I have this gift. Um, magazine that you and I got, that Look Magazine issue from 1964. We got mm-hmm. it at the Dirty Drummer. Yes, our favorite place. <laughs> our favorite watering hole and eatery. Um, we got a 1964 copy of Look Magazine, and I um, was looking through the ads, and I'm just always fascinated. You look at the foods they're advertising, and the heavy cream, and meats, <laughs> and stuff like that, and yet not an obese person to be found. Not one, not an obese, pre- and I'm always fascinated by this. I think the obesity rate in those days was somewhere around eight, nine, ten percent. It just it just didn't exist very much. Today it's forty percent, considerable forty percent, forty percent, and I think the largest driver of health costs, if I'm not mistaken. All right, six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero six zero two fifty eighty nine sixty. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show coming to you live from the 960 Patriot Broadcast Studio brought to you by the Veteran Owned Midas Gold Group your trusted source for precious metals. What was the phrase you're going to use you got from Buckley there?
3: Oh my gosh. Um, Did you says, write it down? I shall elucidate the, the prodigious benefits. The prodigious? Yes, I shall elucidate the prodigious benefits. Are um, those
1: Are those million dollar words elucidate and prodigious?
3: if Buckley's using them they are No,
1: are they? Are they are they words that you would call a reach? You know you knew what both of those words meant.
3: Of course I knew what they meant, but they're not in my regular lexicon and I think after having heard Buckley use them so eloquently, I would like to continue to use them. Yeah.
1: Well, they um they were they were written. They were invented for a reason.
3: Words were invented uh, for a reason. Uh, yes. Yeah.
1: So you should probably have a pretty prodigious vocabulary, B- ample B- vocabulary B-bird. by B-bird, word, now.
3: I would. Bird think. is the word,
1: huh? <laughs> the New York Times is not covering this. CNN is not covering it, and the Washington Post is not covering it. And I am talking about the testimony by uh, former Hunter Biden associate Tony Bobolinsky earlier today. I was making the comment uh in a previous segment on this show that when you think about what the media um how the media used to cover Republican presidents particularly presidents with names like Nixon who has loomed large on today's show I'm not sure why um when you think about you know the way they unremittingly investigated the the, the, the heck out of him. Um, you wonder why with something that involves an enemy country and profiteering and blackmail, why this is getting less coverage. I am reminded from a case that also involved Nixon, known as the Pentagon Papers case, one of the great lines from that case from two of the liberalist, most liberal judges justices of the time. Hugo Black and William Douglas, they wrote, the press was to serve the governed, not the governors, were the governed, it's supposed to serve us, the people, not those in power. The government's power, they wrote, to censor the press was abolished so that the press would forever remain free to censure, that is to say, criticize. The government. Are you getting that now? Are you getting that today? Do you know this Bobulinski story? I was reading from his statement. Let me give you a little of Tristan Justice from The Federalist. A former Biden family business partner told House Investigators Tuesday that President Joe Biden was the brand his family sold to get rich from foreign governments. I want to be crystal clear, said former family associate Tony Bobulinski, from my direct personal experience and what I have subsequently come to learn. It is clear to me that Joe Biden was the brand being sold by the Biden family. Biden's family, excuse me, Biden's family's foreign influence peddling operation from China to Ukraine and elsewhere sold out to foreign actors who were seeking to gain influence and access to Joe Biden and the United States government. Joe Biden was more than a participant in and beneficiary of his family's business. He was an enabler, despite being buffered by a complex scheme to maintain Plausible deniability. The family business partner turned whistleblower went on to outline how his blockbuster testimony four years ago, alleging corrupt use of government positions, went effectively ignored by federal law enforcement. He said, I have never been contacted to provide testimony, nor been asked to speak with anyone connected with the Joe Biden administration, including his Department of Justice including the Federal Bureau of Investigation, including the IRS and local law enforcement, Bobulinski said. That includes U.S. Attorney David Weiss for the District of Delaware or any of the several grand juries I now know were convened after my name became publicly known. Bobulinski publicly made allegations of Biden corruption four years ago after revelations from Hunter Biden's abandoned laptop found at a Delaware repair shop. According to emails recovered from the computer, President Biden had been far more intimately involved in his son's potentially criminal business dealings than he told voters. The former vice president, who is the Obama administration's point man on Ukraine, had repeatedly denied ever speaking business with his son or with anyone else, and even fat shamed an Iowa voter who approached the subject on the campaign trail. Now you begin to understand why that quote I like from Hugo Black and William Douglas is so important. Think about what was done to deep six the story of Hunter Biden's laptop, which is what brought forward, once it was um, verified, brought forward Tony Bobulinski. Remember how much censorship there was around it, not to mention the collusion of the mainstream media, With 51 so-called former intelligence officials, so-called is inappropriate. They were intelligence officials and they had exploited their security clearances and their expertise to say that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian dis or misinformation. Everyone knew it was not. But that was the storyline a month before the 2020 election that was disseminated. That was peddled. And we know from at least two exit polling systems that people voted for Joe Biden differently as a result. That is to say, millions of votes were moved by the suppression of that story when asking people at the After they voted, if they would have voted differently, that is to say, not voted for Biden or voted against Biden or voted for someone else, had they known the essence of that story, they said, yes, enough to shift the election. You want election interference, want to look through the machinations of all the different systems and all the different counties, you can do that, of course, of course you can. But if you want it where it's been proven beyond peradventure. It was the weaponization of those—I prefer the word exploitation—by those 51 intelligence officials in collusion with the media who gave them the credibility and the space and the airtime to peddle that lie that said the laptop news should be suppressed because it was Russian information when it was none of those things and should never have been suppressed. Again— Hugo Black and William O. Douglas, the press was to serve the governed, not the governors. The government's power to censor the press was abolished so that the press would remain forever free to censure the government. And that long list of things Lee Habib was mentioning earlier that we never got a vote on, but we woke up to, found, to find was now de rigueur here in America. One might ask if... The elimination of the First Amendment was one of those things too. Did we sleep through its emendation or eradication? Some days you kinda think like you did. I'm Seth 508 six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. We'll be right back. Portions of this show brought to you by our friends at Y-Refi. They have a heck of an investment opportunity in a secure and collateralized portfolio. It may be a better option for you than where you have your money or some of your money. Now it's got a ton of flexibility and control that they invest in you. There's no attack on principle if you ever need your money back. You, of course, get a monthly statement with no surprises. There are absolutely no fees with Y-Refi and of course you can turn your income on or off or compound it whatever you like best of all you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return with yre 5 a 10 and a quarter percent fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the federal reserve speaking of words like what were they again what were your two new words this is why you need to write things elucidate down. the prodigiousness yes um there was a column in the New York Times william Buckley wrote uh some years back, justifying his use of uh what were called out of town words and um he writes uh, are we uh, are we he writes is is he writes that is his writing considered to be a performance is it performance art and he says yes because just as the discriminating ear greets gladly the C augmented 11th when just the right harmonic moment has come for it, so the fastidious eye encounters happily the word that says exactly what the writer wished not only said but conveyed, the writer here defined as a performing writer sensitive to cadence, variety, marksmanship, accent, nuance, and drama. What of the reader who misses the refinement? Well... What of the listener deaf to the special reach of the sea augmented 11th? That's Buckley's defense of the use of some of these words. And mine is much like his. They were invented for a reason. And uh, if you think about what we were talking about with regard to the historian Will Durant's uh, seven elements that build civilization, language and writing being one of them, language and the use of language being one of them. I think it's just nice to pull out some of the classics from time to time because, after all, you know, we're artists, aren't we? I think so.
3: You're an artist.
1: Well, I think we all are. I think we all are. And that's the point of our American stories. C.F. my interview with Lee Habib at the beginning of this hour. Okay, a lot more coming up. The Hallmans. And I think there's a third.
0: We'll be right back.